appreciate the preparation here tonight. I know uh, some is everything you could do to get here. Thank you for that. The Lord knows that too. Um, I think Karen said upstairs that she was thanking the Lord for the students that prayed that the Lord would meet them tonight in prayer and at the service. Was that was that before brec at breakfast or in fifth period? Fifth period. Fifth period. Answer. <clears throat> but um, I told David I had something I could say. It just came to me. It's not, not something I was thinking about for weeks. It just came. It's about prayer. Because I, um, I asked yesterday. I came in and I had, had a long talk with from my brother. Um, and it was a very bleak call. Like, very bleak. And I would have thought, like, this is it. Like, you know... And, um, and I did ask people to pray. And I honestly was surprised that somehow he, he, uh, things turned. And, uh, and I talked to him today, and it's, it's still on. It turned out different. I don't, I don't know what I was thinking. But this about prayer, that um, sometimes we can be discouraged because we, we subconsciously really like to direct the outcome and the way God should move. And when you don't see that, then it just, like, why pray? But um, my point here is that God does hear the cry of our hearts. And, and if we will really open ourselves and avail ourselves and not try to worry about how it's and when the answer is going to come and not look for evidence, like we... It's, our, it's a relationship of trust, right? Where we, we offer and we trust that he knows and, and, um, and he really knows the best way to answer the prayer. Like have you prayed sometimes and you, you, you come later to look back and you're kind of thankful that God maybe didn't answer that. Like you didn't, you didn't see it entirely the way you thought. You were very zealous at the time. But this says, is, is there any among... Is there any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. I like that because it's like, it doesn't say he's going to heal the sick. It's just, we don't know. The greater outcome is for the salvation of the soul rather than the temporarily, uh, temporal healing, right? That's, that's the God we serve, like, he answers according to what's in his best interest when you and I, when we pray. And it says here, and the Lord shall raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another. This is an important aspect of prayer too. I don't know why I was thinking. If this is applicable, then you can receive it. If you've been praying, then you hang on to it, right? Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that ye may be healed. And I think there is a, there is a place and a need for, a, for that kind of confession and that kind of openness with one another. It's, it's, it's helpful to me. It's beneficial for my healing to be, to be able to be vulnerable. And I don't mean you put something up on the marquee, but there is a time when you need to to uh, to 
bear your heart to somebody that you can trust in confidence. It's all part of the Lord answering prayer. And the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And you can read the rest of it for homework. It's about Elijah, Elijah praying. Anyway, I just would encourage us tonight that when we gather for worship, the Lord puts something on your heart. Just, we lift it up to Him. We lift, him, lift up the service now, Lord, and ask you to um, continue to, to move and have free course in each one of our hearts, Lord. You would have your way, Lord. Help us to be able to relinquish control to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Fear not.
do have to say, that 6 p.m. service did hit me like a thief in the night this afternoon. Brother Richard was talking, everyone's sitting, about prayer, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention Fabian and David Brooks are out pumping septics with our venerable truck. Uh, yeah, the transmission fell off a little bit this afternoon, so there was some repairs. I know, I was thinking about that verse, <clears throat> talks about walking together in unity, being like a oil, and going down Aaron's beard, and so forth. And I did get some oil in my beard um, from the transmission of the septic truck, which I don't know if that's the same thing, but if anyone is wondering what the youthful glow that I have is, it's probably the explanation. So there's a uh, Far Side cartoon that's anointed, I think. Um, there's this dinosaur giving a presentation, kind of like what I'm doing behind a podium. At some kind of a conference, and he says, ladies and gentlemen, things are looking bleak. Um, the environment is changing. The mammals are on the rise. And to make matters worse, we all have brains the size of a walnut. <laughs> Anyway, I don't know if any of you can uh, identify with me, but I think that the more increasingly that I consider the unbelievable high calling to which we believe we are, we are appointed, um, the more sometimes you just feel that you're not quite equal to the task, uh, in a sense, or just, you know, we're just not suitable. You know, when you think about that the end of the matter is that we would be in constant meaningful communion with the creator of the universe. And imagine what manner of creature that you would need to be in order to genuinely have fellowship. Like it says that God wants to dwell amongst his people. I mean, think about that. You know, what kind of a creature am I and what, what kind of creature must I become? What kind of life must I partake of in order that I could dwell, I think it says uh, maybe in Psalms, you know, who can dwell with him who's a consuming fire? You know, it's a good question. Um, but there's a sense also, <clears throat> I think, of, of a resting and a trust in the sovereignty, like the genuine sovereignty of God. I've been, was listening to a couple of, of preachers and they were, <laughs> they're very strong Calvinists and they, um, you know, the one thing you have to say about the Calvinists is they really have an understanding of the Bible and they also have a really great understanding of the genuine sovereignty of God. Um, and there's a sense where you and I are not responsible for the initial conditions that we find ourselves in, in the sense of I did not pick out like, my parents or my genetic heritage or my, you know, my mental outlook on things. I didn't pick out, you know, my tendencies or my inclinations or my weaknesses. None of us did. And so there's a sense where however you and I find ourselves on any given day, we find ourselves there as part of the plan of God. Um, 
by his providential will, we find ourselves as we are. And none of us even asked or were consulted about the particulars of the program of God or how he wanted to, to put things together or set things in order or, or the, the direction. You know, none of us were consulted about that. And God asks Job about that. He says, like, well, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? You know, do you, are you the one who made the hawk to stretch his wings towards the south? Did you, you know, do you know where the wild hinds calve? Look at the behemoth, which I created as well as you. Um, there's just a sense in which I think that there's a, there's just a surrender to the, to the plan and to the will of God that I think is just, is so important. And yet I understand more and more, I think, what Paul said in Romans 7. You don't have to turn there. But it's one of the scriptures that I like. <clears throat> I think it's down in... Maybe I'll start in verse 19. For the good that I would I do, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. And I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. And for I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And it reminds me of the scripture in Psalms when, when David says, give me a united heart to fear you, you know. Um, that there's just a sense of, of multiple lives which, <laughs> which could be being lived, you know, at any given minute. And I'm going to do something which I've never done in church before, <clears throat> probably just because of my pride. Uh, but I'm going to read something from Open Windows, from T.A. Sparks. So, I've been holding out for a long time, but <sighs> let's see here. Yep. Let's... Just trying to be original. It's just that has run out. Okay. Here's something he says. It, is, it was on his essay on the high calling. may not actually be from open windows, so my apologies. He says, here is something that you and I must dwell upon. Personally, I am constantly brought to this. I have not yet learned thoroughly to believe what I believe in. I believe in the finished work of Christ, and yet sometimes I am just as miserable about myself as any man could be. I am often almost at the point of giving up because of what a wretched kind of thing I am. If there is anything in this world that would cause me to give up the Christian ministry, it is myself. Do you understand what I mean? Oh, how we are discouraged by what we find in ourselves. And so we don't believe what we believe in. We believe in the finished work of Christ and that God puts all that finished work to our account. God does not see us in ourselves. He sees us in Christ. He does not see us. He sees Christ in us. We don't believe that. If we really did, we would be delivered from ourselves and would indeed be triumphant Christians. Of course, that does not mean that we can just behave anyhow. We may speak and act wrongly, but for every Christian, there is a refuge, a mercy seat. And this is the part he says that really struck me. It has not to be made. It is there with the precious blood. That has not to be shed. It is shed. There is a high priest making intercession for us. There is everything that we need. The work is finished, completed. Oh, we Christians must believe our beliefs. <laughs> anyway, must confess, the man is, the man is good. Um, you know, part of the war is, to, is just the process of beginning to grasp and believe 
the beliefs that we have all stated many, many times over many hours preaching and listening to preaching and prayer and talking and reading our Bibles and all of those things, I feel like we're just beginning to get our, our hearts and our minds engaged in actually coming to believe the things that we have said for however long. In Isaiah 5, there's a verse, not the most encouraging verse in the world necessarily to start out with, but in Isaiah 5, we could start in verse, verse 10, I guess. It says, Yea, ten acres of vineyard shall yield one bath, and the seed of a homer shall yield an ephah. It's just talking about not, not a lot, not, not getting a lot out of the farmland, basically. It says, Woe unto them that rise up early in the morning, that they may follow strong drink. They continue till night, till wine inflame them, and the harp and the vial and the tabret, the pipe and wine are in their feasts. And here's the part that, that kind of struck me. Is they regard not the work of the Lord, and they neither consider the operation of his hands. And, you know, if you, if you want to think about <clears throat> a good thing to maybe do in our gatherings, and even when you're not in our gatherings, you know, I want to be the sort of person who really is giving due regard to the operation of what God is doing. You know, we have a lot of, of plans. We have a lot of programs. We, we have children to raise. We have different things going on. But over and above all of that, there's a plan of God, which is to transform humans into the sort of person who could fellowship with him forever. Um, and really, all of the other things that are happening are in some way, they are subservient to the actual central thing that's going on in creation, which is something that the Lord is doing. And I was thinking about <coughs> the appreciation of, of a work um, I'll tell a story about my dad, <clears throat> and I don't even have to like embellish it or anything. I just re relate it exactly as told to me. Um, that's the great thing. Um, so one of my dad's favorite things to do is he likes to do very fine carpentry using only the most rudimentary of tools. So he actually made, I don't have a picture of it, I should have. Uh, he made for Luke and Nicole this very beautiful chest um, with a houndstooth dovetail. And he said that he was very pleased with himself because when he put it together, he didn't have to use clamps. He just tapped it together and everything fit perfectly. So he does all this with like a handsaw and a chisel and a hammer. So anyway, he and my mom went to Paris a few years back and he went, they went to the palace at Versailles which was originally a hunting lodge under one of the Louis, but then I think Louis XIV turned it into this very opulent palace full of just incredible craftsmanship. I think I looked it up and they said it would be worth something like $50 billion today in a little portion of the estate. So there's this one room called the Hall of Mirrors, probably a lot of people will have heard of it. It has some just genuinely incredible craftsmanship. Um, the mirrors had never been built of that size before. Um, the floor has this kind of a, wo it looks like it's woven, but it's hand-fit pieces of oak. Anyway, you're supposed to, in the Palace of Versailles, I don't want to get too carried away. As a tourist, you're meant to enter in through one door, sort of proceed with the prevailing current of other tourists, and then exit, and you're not allowed to come back. And you're not really supposed to walk backwards 
to recirculate within one room. So my dad <coughs> fought like a salmon up the stream five times within the Hall of Mirrors. And like on the third time, he runs into these, this small group of German electrical engineers. And he turns to them and he says, have any of you guys been here before? And they say, no. And he said, gentlemen, nothing in your life has prepared you for the experience that you're about to happen. And that is probably true, if for no other reason than they had never gotten a tour from my dad before. <laughs> and so he takes them through all of these things. He says, look at this table. And they look at it and he's telling them about how, you know, these pieces are fit very intricately and they're all looking and then he says, look under the table. <laughs> and there's like even more stuff and, you know, there's these like, hand-tooled brass hinges that these doors work on and these hand-knurled handles and all these things. And he takes them through and he says, when we get to the end, we are not walking out that door. We're going to walk around again. And we're gonna go through it again and see it a second time. And they did. So <laughs> anyway, and he, you know, he said, there was a craftsman who was working, restoring painstakingly some like tiny item and my dad walked up and said, like, I do that. And the guy smiled and, like, showed him all of his tools and stuff. But anyway, there's just a different level of appreciation of work, you know, that you can have. You know, when someone is really engaged in something, you know, their, their ability to appreciate and to enjoy is just so much higher. And, but there's also some, like, terrible stories, you know, in the Bible. I think of Judas, you know, and he's in proximity to the Son of God, like he's near there, he's involved, he's hanging around, you know, but it says, like, when Judas sort of throws a fit about all the money spent on the ointment, you know, they have to include the line, you know, he, he didn't say that because he loved the poor, but because he was a thief and he kept the bag, you know, he wanted more assets under his control. Um, or even I was thinking, you know, there's that very tragic story of Ananias and Sapphira. You know, I always think, it probably wouldn't have been a big deal if they had just said, you know, to the apostles, hey, we sold some property and we would like to give a portion of the proceeds to the church. Like that probably would have been the end of the story. They would have been well-regarded people. You know, it was just the, the lack of truth in their hearts. You know, and it's just, it's horrible to think that you could, that you could be near, approximate to the plan of God, approximate to the work of God, but not really regarding it and not really letting it, you know, have its work, um, you know, and if you, you know, want to think, yeah, in church, perhaps it would be a good thing to, to consider and to talk about the work of God. So I'll read you some Bible verses about it because you should do what you were saying, I guess. But I like Ezekiel has a bunch of, of good verses about it, about what the Lord is, is actually trying to accomplish. In verse uh, Ezekiel 34, he says in verse 22, therefore will I save my flock and they shall no more be a prey. I will judge between the cattle and cattle and I will set up one shepherd over them and he shall feed them. Even my servant David, he shall feed them and he shall be their shepherd. I the Lord will be their God and my servant David, a prince among them. And I the Lord have spoken it. You know, and the great thing about a truly sovereign God I really draw a lot of comfort from the verse that says, you know, the word that I send will prosper in the thing that it, you know, it will accomplish what it has been sent forth to do and it will prosper. Um, 
you know, there's a certainty in the work of God. I don't know that there's a certainty in what level of difficulty I will encounter by being unwilling to engage with the work of God. You know, like it, even in Hebrews, I think it, it talks about God preserving just Lot, you know. And there is clearly a genuine work of God happening in Lot's life because it says that his righteous soul was vexed, vexed from day to day by the unlawful deeds that he was seeing all around him. And yet, when the Lord gave the provision to separate himself from that, and he gave him a clear way of escape, you know, just by being unwilling to join himself to the work of deliverance that the Lord was doing, Lot wound up in so much extra trouble, you know. And, like, I kind of believe that there's a sense in which, you know, the provision of the lamb slain before the foundation of the world is able to deliver us out of a lot of the hash that you might make out of your life. But I just increasingly, I have a burden for myself, and, you know, I have kids. I, I just don't want to take the hardest possible way through this, you know. <laughs> and, you know, if there's, a way to, <laughs> if there's a way to humble yourself early on and really... <laughs> And really regard the work of the Lord and give it its, its, its due weight, you know, in the calculations of all this stuff. It's like, I want to get this into my soul if I can, you know, and not have to be dragged kicking and screaming the whole way if there's, you know, if there's a way to do it. And, and part of the work of the Lord, I think, and this is kind of <clears throat> the irony of this is not lost on me, but I've been reading a little bit about the Sabbath, which is the day of rest. And I just don't have any impartation in that matter right now, so I don't know if I'm qualified to speak. Um, we don't have to... Yeah. For some reason, my son really likes to sleep when all the people are like in the kitchen chattering and banging dishes and doing stuff. Um, and then at like two in the morning, the click of a door will awaken him. So anyway. People just want to come over and like make food and talk in the kitchen like in the middle of the night or whatever. That would be probably allowable. I think we would we'll just bring him down there and that'd be fine. But in um, in Leviticus 25, there's some discussion about the Sabbath, and it's not just like like there's a day of rest every week, but then for the farmers, there's also a year of rest every seven years, and then. Not only that, but every, if you've done that seven times, then there's actually a year of Jubilee. And like at every point, there's like, it's not just a day of, a year of rest or a day of rest, but there's also like a time when all debts are canceled or you know, people have the opportunity to go back and repurchase land that they had lost and so forth. The people who had been sort of fallen into indentured servitude are given their freedom. And so the, you know, the whole idea of the Sabbath is this very profound thing. Um, and obviously, it's symbolic in, in one sense, um, because Jesus says to the people, well, I should back up. So Brother Abel gave me this book about uh, Jewish history, and I did some independent research. And one of the things that they said was that <laughs> there was so much debate about what constituted work, that there was many, many pages written, like even, um, you know, like braiding hair. There was like rib rabbis arguing and debating back and forth, like, would it be work to braid hair on the Sabbath? Like, not sure. Anyway, you know, so it was very important when Jesus says, look, it's lawful to do good deeds on the Sabbath. You know, he says the Sabbath is for the man, not the man for the Sabbath. 
I am the Lord of the Sabbath. So that's not the issue. You know, we know that the ultimate issue is, I think over in Hebrews, you know, there remaineth a rest for the people of God. Um, maybe we should read it, I suppose. It's a good scripture. But the point being, you know, the genuine rest that we enter into is, you know, resting from our own works. Like the genuine Sabbath that we are to observe is actually that I release, you know, the death grip on my own way that I would tend to have. And he says, I'll just start in verse 1 of chapter 4. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which believe do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, though the works were finished from the foundation of the world. And he, you know, he talks about, you know, seeing it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not because of their unbelief. And he says, there remains a rest to the people of God in verse 9. For he that has entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. And I was thinking that, you know, it genuinely is uh, such a labor sometimes. <laughs> Uh, because we're so welded, you know, and so joined to our own way. And I, I triple underlined a very short line that Brother Ted shared this summer. And he was saying, um, are you convictable? That was the one sentence that, he, that I wrote down that, was, that really jumped out at me. Um, you know, like, it seems like in any truth that you were to try to grasp or anything you were trying to understand or anything you were participating in, it just seems that there's always so much, there's always another level higher, it seems like, or something more to understand or something deeper uh, to grasp or to, to be a hold of. Um, so the, the question is, in some sense, not like, am I right about this, you know, controversy. The real question I, I think you have to ask yourself is, am I convictable? Like, could I change, you know? Um, could I humble myself, you know, before a, a circumstance or, you know, would I be sensitive enough uh, that I could receive um, a word from the Lord about something and dislodge me? You know, like we often speak about, you know, our our offering to the Lord, but there's also a thing that I think Paul writes. You know, he says you need to receive with gentleness the engrafted word. You know, and there's a there's an engrafted word, a powerful word that I believe that the Lord has. You know, but there's a level of receiving it, you know, and, and how much force does God have to use <laughs> to get the word into me, uh, you know, that he has determined that I be a partaker of, you know. And I'll read one more verse if I can find it. And I'll wind things down before the sun is gone. Also kind of curious to see what my daughter's drawn. <laughs> yeah, maybe I'll read two more verses. In uh, Isaiah 57, 
He's talking about the wicked. I think it's in uh, verse... talking about the rest. He says, The wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose water is cast up mire and dirt, and there is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. And then if you turn to Isaiah 58, this is one of my favorite sets of verses, so I'll maybe finish off here. I have a little bit of time. I'll just start in verse 1 and maybe jump around a little bit. It says, cry aloud, spare not, lift up thy voice like a trumpet, and show my people their transgressions and the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as a nation that did righteousness and forsook not the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching to God. Wherefore have we fasted, say they, and thou seest not? Wherefore have we afflicted our soul, and thou takest no knowledge? Behold, in the day of your fast ye find pleasure and exact all your labors. Behold, ye fast for strife and debate, to smite with the fist of wickedness. Ye shall not fast as ye do this day, to make your voice be heard on high. Is it such a fast that I have chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head as a bulrush, and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Wilt thou call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I have chosen, to loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, and let the oppressed go free, and that ye break every yoke? Is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry, and that thou bring the poor that are cast out to thy house? When thou seest the naked, that thou cover him, and thou hide not thyself from thine own flesh, then shall thy light break forth as the morning, and thine health shall spring forth speedily, and thy righteousness shall go before thee, and the glory of the Lord shall be thy reward. Then shalt thou call, and the Lord shall answer. Thou shalt cry, and he shall say, Here I am. If thou take away from the midst of thee the yoke, and the putting forth of the finger, and the speaking of vanity, and if thou draw out thy soul to the hungry, and satisfy the afflicted soul, then shall thy light rise in obscurity, and thy darkness be as noonday. The Lord shall guide thee continually, and satisfy thy soul in drought, and make fat thy bones, and thou shalt be a watered garden, and like a spring of water whose waters fail not. Now, I'll let you guys finish the rest for homework, but, um, amen. I'll even take this off. lost the verse that I was going to read, but I know it's still in there. It's in Proverbs. That is that um, it's the glory of God to conceal a matter, and it's the honor of kings to search it out. And, you know, the, <clears throat> the thing that it says of Moses is that he endured as seeing him that was invisible. And, you know, the the Bible uh, makes it plain that what is seen actually is temporal. And what's not seen is eternal. And when it says not seen, it means it's not um, discerned 
by the five senses necessarily, but rather it's discerned by the spirit that there's another communicationing that's going on in the life and the heart of the believer. And boy, is that an essential ingredient for us. Because God really has a way of making uh, things look bad. And actually, ab absolutely contrary to his promise. And I mean, you could think of examples yourself, but if you think of Joseph, God gave him that dream <clears throat> and he had no understanding. And this is where we've been. God has given us a dream and a vision that we plainly said amen to. As a matter of fact, some people were so fanatical, they moved four or 5,000 miles <laughs> following that dream or vision. Um, do you know Glenda lived at Huna? Now, I don't know if you, who's been to Huna. I've been to Huna, and I've often tried to picture Glenda in Huna. And I, you know, I just fail. She gets her nails done, you know, she, gets, she always keeps herself nice. I, you, you know, and there's an oddity about that, you know, and my grandmother went to Huna also. It's a little more understandable. She was, you know, there's a percentage of craziness there already, so. Um, you know, I talked to Paul Weaver, and he went to Huna, and that's not hard to imagine. <laughs> he lived in the, in the uh, sawmill shack, which he thought was great. It didn't float as well when his wife came six months later. Anyway, he said, I didn't know. I thought it was great. I brought fellowship, and, you know. <laughs> anyway. The thing about the work of God is, it's got to be looked for. Because what comes normal to us is whatever, you know, whatever we see, you know, uh, we call it like we see it, we call it like we hear it, we, you know, all of that. And, and really it would behoove every single one of us to uh, say, Lord, you conceal your work at times so well. Give me a heart to search out your work. Boy, it would really help you when you look in the mirror and when you look at each other. I come home and, and you know, I, I, I was talking to Richard, you know, because he's a priest. I would like to get one of those little booths with a velvet curtain. I mean, so it doesn't have to be so public. But, um, you know, it just sometimes you just get a lot of bad news. And uh, sometimes it's over the same stuff and it's just in different <laughs> circumstances. And, and, you know, I, got, I came home, got some phone calls, got some information. And, and I, and I appreciate that uh, you get home and you get immediately grounded. And, um, you know, I just believe that God does that intentionally to provoke us. It says, Lord, this doesn't look like your vision. If you look at Joseph's life, it didn't look like the vision for 13 years.
But Lord, <clears throat> open my eyes to see your work. One of the most beautiful prayers was when, was it Elisha, what his servant? He said, alas, what are we going to do? <laughs> you know, he said, Lord, could you open this guy's eyes? Show him what's going on. So God, you know, in this tonight, seeing God's work, Lord, open our eyes afresh that we could see what you're doing. Because if you don't see that, you don't look for that, you don't get a glimpse of it, it really has a way of stopping endurance. But you got to look at, really, Lord, help me to see your work that is ongoing. So thank you, Sam. Uh, I will say we had a, a really had a, a great time with Maria. And I appreciate all you that care about her, and I know a lot of you do. And she really is doing well. She really is. That was an encouragement. So that was nice. And the convention was good, too.